You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We are in a series right now um, through the book of Genesis. It's called um, God and Man. And, uh, and, and as, we, uh, as we've been talking, it's been so good to gather around the scriptures each and every week um, to do what ultimately the New Testament church has, has always been doing. You know, in the, in the letter uh, to Timothy from, from Paul, uh, he, com- he commends Timothy, a young church um, planter and, and a team of elders there that was representing the church of Ephesus, to not negate the public reading of Scripture. Uh, in other words, um, don't just get a guy up there to give a speech, but gather the community around the Word of God and understand um, his, just his timeless truth, just like what he's saying through the narrative of Scripture. And so there's just something... Um, powerful, something ordained, something anointed, I believe, every time we gather just to, to ask the Word of God, ask the Scriptures um, to, to speak to us um, about who we are and where we're from. Uh, we need it more than ever. Uh, we're in a series right now through the book of Genesis. Uh, we're going to make it through chapter 11 by December. If you look on the screen, this is kind of a graphic imagery, um, which I know we're all mature and very literate people and don't need cartoons to help us understand things. But then again, couldn't hurt, right? Uh, I remember t- teaching um, APUS history in, uh, in, in the high school, and one of the best things that I learned to do with students was to make things graphic, to make things uh, visual, to be able to see things. And so uh, if you look, not this one, but the picture before it, if we have it, um, this poster is actually available free online at BibleProject.com. There's also the video that some of you guys have looked at. Every book of the Bible has its own synopsis video. Genesis 1 through 11 is about seven minutes. And so just as a reminder and a visual representation of where we've gone so far in the first couple of times together gathering around Genesis 1 and 2 is that um, although that the world is under a curse, God did not create this world for a curse. That uh, this world was made beautiful and made good Um, in the creation of God. And although it is under a curse, it is not fundamentally cursed. The theme of all of Genesis that we'll be considering for the rest of the next year, really, is this question. In in a broken but blessed world, how do we bless this world, this good world gone bad, as it says in the top left-hand screen over there, this good world gone bad, how do we partner with God? A specific kind of relationship that would result in the blessing of uh, his image bearers and the, bre- and the blessing of this world that he has come to rescue and redeem? How do we partner with what God is already doing? As it says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph prophesies what's true of all different nations, not just the story of Joseph and his brothers, what you have meant for evil, is what Joseph says, what the enemy has meant for evil, God in his goodness is turning for good. This is, a, this is not a cursed day, especially if we're in crisis. It's a blessed day. This is a gift day. This is a day to receive from the tree of life, not from the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. And so the ultimate theme is, uh, how, are, how are we partnering with God to bless his world? So we started from the left, and, and the first time we gathered, we talk about the seven days of creation, that God was not breathing into evil, his raw breath, but breathing into chaos, a shalom, order, and form, and a function, that he numbered the stars, that he created man in his image, that he ordered it all by time and chronology, as well as seasons, as well as temperature and lights. He put everything perfect, not just to make a planet, but to create a home where he could dwell perfectly in his temple called Eden with man. And out of that, he created image bearers. He created people made in his image, male and female like he created them to represent him, to rule and reign, to have dominion over the earth. 
in Psalm 8, uh, we see an echo of this, you know, who is man, O Lord, that you would create the sun and the stars and then create man that is just below the angels to rule and reign on your behalf. And so they are reflections of God's character, representatives of God's rule to harness the latent potential of creation. This was the mandate um, of, of Adam and Eve. And then in the middle of that garden were two trees. And we will pick up on that story a little bit today and especially in future weeks. But there were two trees. The first was the tree of life. In Psalms and in Revelation, we learn that the tree of life is, is a picture and a metaphor of just sitting with God and receiving, receiving life as a gift. The tree of life represents healing. The tree of life represents wisdom. The tree of life represents, um, uh, it represents truth. It represents uh, peace. It's, it's the place where I receive life as a gift. And that, is, that was Adam and Eve's option. That, was, that is our option today. But beside it, a tree that will pick up again in Genesis chapter 3 was, was a different tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree represented seizing uh, the definition of good and evil for ourselves and living autonomously without God. It's trying to live life without the presence of God, which ultimately he promised you know, results in death. Ultimately, to reign and rule, you would have to have wisdom. You'd have to know the difference between uh, tov and ra, goodness and not goodness, is what actually the Greek or the Hebrew word means. You would have to know that, but you would know that in relationship. You wouldn't know that by way of your own wisdom and gaining understanding apart from God. No, the, the tree of life had everything that they needed to rule and reign with God before the curse. So uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, and if you want to take a look if, uh, up on the screen, there's a little bit of a, of a change in the schedule. But this is the reading plan that we're going to be looking at for the next couple of months. And because we've kind of moved at a bit of a faster pace, some of the themes tied together, we're actually going to have uh, our first, um, well, at least in a little while, City Lights discussion panel up here. We're going to have a few people up here to discuss some of these themes. Um, there's a lot going on in these chapters, almost too much to cover, and so we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to guide a discussion up here uh, with a couple of other family members here in this church to discuss how do you take this stuff home with us? How, what does this mean for us today? If you have any questions or you have kind of a Q&A uh, thought in your city groups or you have a discussion point or an observation that was not made on stage, essentially email, email me, oong at citylights.cc, and would love love to make this a circle, not just a set of rows when it comes to looking at the scriptures together. But we are uh, in just kind of the second portion of image bearing. Um, let, me, uh, let me read some of these passages and we'll get going. So it says in chapter 2, verse 28, it says, uh, actually, uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 19, rather. It says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So there's uh, this sense of image bearing, this idea of the image of God uh, standing at its post, doing what it was intended to do, which was to rule and reign with God. Now, today we're going to be talking about um, uh, what was not only good in the Garden of Eden, but what was yet not good. There is a, a distinct difference between chapter 1 in Genesis and chapter 2 in Genesis in that in chapter 1, man and woman were made with the same verse. Uh, it said that God created them in his image. He created man and woman in his image. In his image, he created them. But in chapter 2, you have a different variation of the creation of man and woman, which was Adam was there without Eve. And the Bible says that him uh, being there by himself was not good. It's the first instance of not good. And so there's this passage that I want to back up and look at. It's actually in the Gospel of Matthew, verse, uh, chapter 19. And um, 
And buckle your seatbelts because, of course, uh, in, in, Ge- in Genesis chapter 2, as we talk about things like man and woman and gender uh, and marriage, and therefore, of course, in our context, divorce, um, the Bible um, has everything to say about every topic that we uh, get into in life. And so there's a passage in chapter 19 of Matthew that refers back to Genesis 2 that I think gives us a really great perspective about why this passage matters, why it mattered then and why it might matter to us more than any other passage uh, we can think of in our, in our social context. This is what it says in the book of Matthew. The Pharisees came to Jesus, and it says they tested him, and they asked him this question, is it lawful to be divorced? So we know that uh, the people that were coming to Jesus were teachers of the law, and it says overtly they were not there for curiosity. They were there to trap and politically test Jesus. And they were asking about a really common dilemma and debate that was going on in that time over Deuteronomy chapter 24 regarding divorce. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, there is a, um, a, a word that is not used any, anywhere else in all of the law uh, of, of, of Moses, where it says that, um, that man uh, could divorce his wife for reasons of indecency. This was a term that we just didn't really know what it meant. And so, of course, in words that you don't know what they mean, especially in politics, there's always a debate about what that word means, and then there's going to be a strict interpretationist and a loose interpretationist. There were several rabbis that would have insight into what this meant. Either you could get divorced from your wife because she burned the cookies, or you couldn't get divorced from your wife for any possible reason at all. And this is the debate that they're bringing to Jesus to try and trap him, knowing that if he goes left, then he'll lose all the people on the right, and if he goes right, he'll lose all the people on the left. And so Jesus... uh, he actually gets kind of frustrated, and you see the kind of sarcasm. I don't advocate sarcasm, you know, in, 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 in Christian faith and community and culture, but Jesus has a little bit of a whip for him, right, like a, like a quip. Uh, and, and that is, he, he'll say this, these things to these PhD, basically, teachers of the law. He says, hey, have you all read the Bible before? Um, have, you, have you read the first page of the Bible before? So Jesus, when he gets drug into political discourse about gender or race or sexuality or marriage, he's not going to talk about the law or politics. He's going to talk about Genesis. He's actually not going to talk about rules and regulations and law. He's going to talk about heart and humanity and purpose. And so he goes back to the very verse that we're talking about, and this is what he quotes. He says, Have you not read who created them from the beginning? He made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For Jesus, he can't think about marriage, he can't think about gender, he can't think about divorce without thinking about what is a human. And, and, and what he quotes back from Genesis 1, and we'll get back to it in a second on the screen, but as you guys remember, and we've thought about it and rehearsed it so many times, is, is, is to Jesus, the issue of marriage and covenant is, is not just about... Um, is not just about community or not just about getting out of loneliness, but it was about what it meant to be human. In fact, uh, when, Jesus said, or when God says in Genesis 2 that man is not good to be alone, what he's kind of saying is that man isn't, isn't even man yet until Eve is there. Because the word man, that is in Genesis 1, the, the issue of using the word man, man is, is Adam. It doesn't actually mean male. Uh, man, like he created man, it means Adam means human. He created humans. And so humanity is not just Adam and his helper, Adam and his appendage, and Adam and the person that helps him reproduce. No, no, humanity is man and woman, male and female. He created them, two distinct different partners coupled together by covenant love that represents the Trinity. Uh, Adam could not, in other words, uh, do this. Adam could not image God properly, you know, fulfill his ultimate design by the creator God until Eve got there. 
that man without Eve was not humanity. Adam and Eve, man and woman together, united in covenant love, two distinct others made one by covenant love and surrender is what God's vision and purpose was for man, for humanity. And so he says it like this, how can you even, how can you even think about the law abstractly in some sort of legal sense without going back to the original intent? The design was always this, man was not just man and his friend that helped him not be lonely, man, humanity, was man and woman. And in, in the purpose of image bearing, in the ter- purpose of being blessed, to reign and rule, to subdue, to work and tend the land, none of that was possible, especially multiplication and filling the earth without woman. So you have to go back to the original design. You can't go to the law books. He says in verse six, so the, the no longer would be, two would become, uh, they, excuse me, so they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then they retorted, they said, but Jesus... They said, why then did Moses command, and this is a squirrely word here, one who uh, gives a certificate of divorce and send her away? What we know, if we go back in Deuteronomy 24, they must have reinterpreted and misinterpreted through the game of theological telephone here. Moses never commanded, this is what Jesus is going to tell him, he never commanded divorce. He he permitted divorce because because of what Jesus calls the hardened heart, the state of the world. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to get divorce from your wife. Uh, But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to whoever divorces his wife, he makes a stance. And here it is. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another uh, commits adultery. And before moving on, we can't just leave that looming in the air. Keep in mind that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that any person that looks on anyone with lust already commits adultery in their heart. And also passages like 1 Corinthians 10, where it talks about, other ways to reinterpret the marriage law and how we handle marriage and divorce within the body of Christ, a total other sermon that we can't handle today. But the point was that Jesus wasn't giving a new law and a boundary line for what makes divorce okay and what makes divorce not okay. In Jesus' eyes, the whole thing revolves around Genesis 2, and what he was speaking to at that particular time was a group of Pharisees that were looking for ways to divorce their wife because they burned the cookies. And so he says, no, no. <laughs> You don't get divorced over burning cookies. You, 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 you cherish the covenant law. God created man. It is something central and, and essential to what it means to be a human being, that being human is to be Adam and Eve, to be masculine and feminine, to be united by covenant love, to have two separate others surrendered to each other, to image well what intimacy and representation would look like in one place. A couple of quotes for us um, coming from uh, Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, about our day and how we look at marriage relationship, and divorce, which I think help us uh, look into Genesis 2, which we'll get into in a moment. Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, he, he compiles for us a couple of statistics. None of them really are probably surprising to us. First, um, that, uh, that the divorce rate today is roughly 50%, which is uh, more than double what it was in 1950. It was just below 25%. So over uh, the last, whatever it's been, you know, 70 years, that the uh, number of divorces uh, within America uh, is, is, is twice as many. And that even that statistic is even less encouraging because the fact of the matter is, even of the sample that do get divorced, uh, there is even a smaller sample of American adults that actually get married in the first place. So in other words, it's saying uh, less people are getting married and the number of those people, which is lower than it used to be, uh, much lower, are not lasting in their marriage. So 75% of all U.S. adults married today, um, uh, 75% 
of all U.S. Um, citizens, rather, back then in 1950 were married. And today that number is down to 50%. So it's less uh, marriages and then less successful marriages of that sample. And then lastly, that in 1960, uh, the number of cohabiting adults, people living together before being married, was uh, negligible. It was probably less than 2%. But today, 25% of all women, and we only record the women because of pregnancies and so forth, 25% of Americans, uh, women, will cohabitate before they're married. And all of this tends to support the kind of uh, surveys and, and kind of opinion surveys that, are given, that were given at this time that um, Tim Keller compiled that, that kind of uh, surmised three basic bullet points of the way that Americans and the way that we look at marriage in general, the, the very essence of what marriage means. One, uh, it's, a very, it's, it's, it's of the majority opinion that living together uh, before marriage is a great way to test sexual chemistry uh, to make sure the marriage will last, which of course is a fallacy in a statistical sense, but that is the belief, is that testing out sexual chemistry before getting married actually will strengthen the marriage. That is a common belief in our culture. Two, that the key to a satisfying marriage, by definition in the survey, is uh, to find yourself a compatible soulmate. So they actually did a, a, a smaller sample uh, study for this book uh, through eHarmony, basically looking at what people were looking for in their mate and how they were going to find their Prince Charming and so forth. And uh, what they found there is generally what people are looking for as they look for people to be married to is someone that won't change them, that won't fix them, uh, that won't challenge them, and will basically love them for who they are without having to uh, grow as a person. And this fundamentally uh, is a problem, well, at least to the cultural mandate that was set in the 1950s. Not saying that that's perfect either, but it is definitely changing. And so uh, Sarah Parker Pope, who wrote this New York Times bestseller, explains what she thinks is the essence of what these statistics tell us, is that you know, 50, 70 years ago, the vision for marriage was this. It was a consenting uh, 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 it was a consenting contract or a covenant between two people to surrender their, their needs and restrain themselves for the benefit of the marriage. That's what the 50s uh, marriage was about, at least culturally, that they, they saw marriage as somewhere to mutually surrender needs and goals for the sake of the greater family, for the couple, for the marriage, for the household, and for the children. Today, this is what Tara Parker Pope kind of surmises in her book, uh, that, that marriages on a cultural level basically exist to be a sexual contract for mutual uh, gratification for individuals. And once that contract is broken, once it's no longer about uh, happiness and, and personal uh, fulfillment and sexual gratification, then the marriages cease to last because they weren't built that way in the first place. And in a sense, the, the culminating thesis point of her book is, is basically... 50, 70 years ago, the, the idea of what marriage was was marriage was about we, whereas today marriage is about me. The very meaning of marriage you know, has, been, has been changed. The very meaning of gender has been changed. There's been a 329% increase from a generation ago of people that are non-defined gender roles, meaning children that are being brought up and raised in, in American culture today. There's a 329% increase of kids that if you ask them, what is your gender, they would say uncertain. And so for Jesus, this was not a political debate. This was not ultimately about rules, regulations, and law, or even about Deuteronomy. Because Deuteronomy, and this is for us as we read the scriptures as well, was not uh, God's moral ideal, right? He says that right in the book. He's saying the, the law was given because hardened hearts needed to 
here some semblance of what God's ordained Genesis ideal was. But ultimately, the law wasn't the ideal. Genesis was the ideal. And for God, it wasn't a legal issue. It was a personal issue. It was a heart issue. And he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he says, do you remember who made you? Because it sounds like you've forgotten. Do you remember why you're here? It sounds like you've forgotten your purpose. You've lost your way. Do you remember um, Jerusalem or America? What you are talking about when you're talking about sex and marriage and gender? The answers are in Genesis 2. This is what he quotes, verse 18, back to where we began. The Lord said, when Adam was in the garden without Eve, this is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper uh, fit for him. So we know that uh, later on when, when, when the divine surgery, so to speak, happens and, and God takes the rib out of Adam, that the picture of man and woman was not one ruling over the other or one being below the other. Matter of fact, that's part of the curse. In Genesis chapter 3, it says that because of this curse, uh, something like the, the, the desire of woman will be against man and man will rule over you. This is part of what the curse is. The original intent of Genesis was that uh, man and woman would be side by side uh, serving one another and, and, and imaging with one another what God wanted to do on the earth. And so there's a lot of things that aren't good with Adam in the garden without Eve. Not just that there wasn't multiplication, but there also wasn't community, and there also wasn't femininity, that something in who God is and his character was lacking in Adam because there wasn't the feminine counterpart. So we go back to this, and so what, this becomes the question, right? Like, what, what is missing that God is saying is not good? Is it just the fact that God can't have, or the, excuse me, that Adam can't have babies, and we go back, we got to remember and rehearse from Genesis 1. Okay, if, if, if we're looking at what God is saying is not good, we have to ask ourselves, what did God say was good on that sixth day? And this is what we remember. We can have it on the screen, Genesis 1. This is, the, this is what he is saying we, we misunderstand, misinterpret, and therefore stray from who we are and what we're created to do. It says in Genesis uh, chapter 1, uh, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. So again, man is Hadam. It just means humankind. He didn't just create man and then a, a buddy to hang out with. He created humanity, which is man and woman together, two distinct others surrendered in covenant love. Verse 28, and he blesses them. This is back in chapter one. To be fruitful and multiply and subdue it. So what are we saying? If God created that to be good and Adam is without Eve and it's called not good, then then Adam minus Eve is not just not good because he can't have babies. Adam minus Eve is not good because he can't do the whole thing without her. He can't be blessed without her. He can't image God without her. He can't subdue the land without her. He can't have dominion on the earth without her. He can't multiply without her. He can't work and tend the temple of God. He can't priest without her. He can't image God without her. Eve was not just a, a, an additional supplement, you know, icing on the cake. No, Eve was an essential essence of who humanity was always meant to be. And so what's the question? What is not good about Adam without Eve? What is not good of Adam without Eve is that he can't image without her because he is incomplete in the human project and what humanity was always designed to be. And so he says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. This is so important. Verse 19. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. I believe this is some of the reason why we, get, we, we, we lose our way in things downstream of this, like gender and marriage and divorce. Because this, this verse, this is, this is where God's heart is at. 
Verse 20, he gave, uh, the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the heavens, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no helper uh, found fit for him. This is the only picture. You think about this. This is the only picture we have of man active doing something before the fall. Okay? So, so the rest of it, man's sitting there. He's getting breathed CPR you know, rub breath into his lungs. He's being created. He's being named. There's all this purpose. There's a vision statement. There's a mission statement. He's ready to go. But this is when the rubber hits the road. This is when he's actually doing something. And, and we have to get out of, I think, sometimes our, our, our Christian mindset. Like, there, there is a huge emphasis with, within the way that I was raised and maybe the way that you were raised. We talked about this on the, the way that we relate to God. And the question becomes, do you have a personal, how many times have you heard this before? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Like this is, I think, kind of the epitome of what I've been raised as a disciple in Jesus of what the church exists to do is help people restore their relationship with Jesus. And so then my journal, if you look in my journal from being a kid and maybe your journal as well, everything revolves in a good way around the covenant love of God. Do I believe that God loves me or not? Am I a son or not? Am I close? God, I feel close to you today. God, I feel far away from you today. God, you know, I've, I sinned today. I need forgiveness. You know, this, this teaching and doctrine on covenant, right? And so this, this emphasis on God is loving, and I'm not always so loving, but even when I'm not loving, God loves me. That's what the bumper sticker is, right? God loves you. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? How many times, and you, you really do think about this, has anyone ever come up to you and said, hey, do you rule and reign with Jesus Christ? How many times can you count on your hand that somebody said, you know, to a youth or, or to you or in a Bible study, hey, are you, how is ruling and reigning and having dominion over the earth going? In an anti-authoritarian culture, right? In an anti-legalistic culture, the fear of what that would mean. But this is the original, like this is the mission statement of what man was created for. Yes, to have a relationship, but a very specific kind of relationship. You notice that if God had one verse to explain the picture of what image bearing looks like, it is not a picture of, of Adam walking, holding hands with, with God on the beach, just looking into his eyes. But yet, I fear that sometimes, like our worship and the way that we present God and what he's about in the world looks a lot more like a walk on the beach. But C.S. Lewis was right along. His perfect picture of what image bearing was, was royally standing before every animal and calling them what they were. You know, naming something is, is very close to giving something meaning and substance. Everything simple is the Best Buy people that call their people Geek Squad and the Apple people that call their people the Genius Bar. They're doing the same thing, but there's a meaning that's there. Those are shallow items, but you know it can go all the way up the chain. Like in Russia and Germany during the totalitarian governments, the, the, the powers that be actually renamed the value of human beings so much so that they could actually call, they had terms in both Russian and German to call different individuals as less than human. The power of naming is the power to destroy. The power of naming is the power to define. And in the picture of Genesis, Adam is not walking on the beach trying not to get in God's way and lovingly looking up at him in some romantic relational fantasy. He is, he is standing with God, and God is bringing a procession, a parade of animals. And it says in the scriptures that whatever Adam called that thing, God agreed with him. This is, this is the picture. As we back up and think about what's man and what is woman and what's the role, the, pur the purpose of man and woman was to have a relationship with God, have a very specific kind of relationship, to have dominion, to be fruitful, to be multiplied, to advance and extend God's will and reign in the earth, to work and tend the land, to be priests, a royal priesthood, Peter would call us in the New Testament, to have dominion over the world. This is his mandate, his mantle of what man and woman were always supposed to do together. 
And so it continues. It's not good yet. In other words, Adam can't, he can't fully fulfill his role. He's got the animals. We know he's naming them. He, he is looking for a helper suitable for him. It reminded me actually of uh, this week of um, that song that Cher sang back in the 90s, and I miss you like the, like the desert misses the rain. You know, in, in Genesis 2, there's this parallel picture where it's like there's this desert wasteland. He's like, that's not good, so we're going to put man in there to be the gardener, and then he brings the plants. But then man sits here, and uh, he's like, oh, this isn't good. I've got all these animals, but I've got no Eve. And so they go through all the animals, and it's like, oh, there's no helper fit for him. So it just made me think, in the same way as the desert was missing the plants, Adam was missing Eve. There you go. That's share for you. But anyways, uh, so Eve is created um, through this kind of divine surgery, very, very mysterious, mystical. Verse, uh, ch- chapter 2, verse 21 says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of ri- the ribs and closed up the place in, uh, with flesh. The, the deep sleep there, uh, the writer would have completely known because he wrote the book, not like in, in, in chronology. He wrote the book looking backwards that the deep sleep that's here represents a lot of the deep sleep that we saw Abraham with in Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham cut a covenant with God. We find that Abraham does all the work to kill the animals and creates a corridor of blood and the covenant should have been where Abraham and God um, cut covenant between the pieces, between the d- divides of the animals. But before that, it says in the scriptures that Abraham uh, fell into a deep sleep and God walked through the corridor of blood by himself. And so, so this is a fundamental picture to remind us of what covenant love and intimacy would look, would look like, of, 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 that God, of that Adam did walk with, with God in the cool of the day. That, that was part of the thing. It wasn't the point of the relationship completely, but it was part of it was there was this intimacy and this covenant love was described by a deep sleep. If you look at uh, Psalm 127, I believe it's verse two, this is a great way to try and understand what covenant and sleep have to do with each other. It says in Psalm 127 verse two, it is in vain that people rise up early and go late to rest, eating bread of anxious toil for, he says, he gives his beloved sleep. Sleep in the covenant sense reminds us, it reminds us in a very, very important important part, that the relationship that we have with God and the way that he cares for us and walks with us and rules and reigns with us is always a gift and not a paycheck, and that everything that we ever receive from God is a gift. This is what sleep means to covenant. This is why it's so important that the scripture says Eve was made while Adam was in a deep sleep because it was continually showing and demonstrating and modeling that everything that's good comes from God and the Father of lights provides that, not because we earned it, but because he gave it to us. The breath that is in Adam's uh, lungs, the breath that's in our lungs today, the breath that gives him life and divine authority over the animals is not because you know, he, he has somehow earned it, he's better, he's smarter. It's just because God has called him that. He has defined Adam and Eve in that way. His wife, his covenant partner, the community he experiences, the invitation out of loneliness and isolation and into community, it was a gift. It was a gift. It was a gift. His ability to rule and reign, to have dominion over the earth, it wasn't because he had earned it, because he had passed the test or you know, written up some great resume or had great acumen. No, it's because it was a gift. The tree of life was a gift. Wisdom was a gift. The opportunity to live with God forever in his eternal temple was a gift. And this is what sleep means to us in a covenant uh, standpoint. Um. So my, my, my iPad notes uh, died, and as you guys have been here before, uh, this can happen from time to time. So now you're going to see me uh, flounder. 
But uh, let, let's get the next passage up. I think there's a few more passages from Genesis. In the rib of the Lord, go to the next one here. Next slide. Then the man said, this is at last, the reception of this gift, at last, the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God actually in the beginning of Genesis 2 talks about the creation of Adam and Eve like it's a genealogy. This is the genealogy of humankind. The same way that they would say in the rest of Genesis that, you know, Abraham of Isaac and Isaac had Jacob and so forth. They're, they're talking this way that God is the father. God is the beginning of the genealogy of Adam. And so uh, there's a covenant that's created there because God has breathed his life and given his likeness to man. But now there's a second covenant that's already created, although the word covenant has never been said. The covenant has been demonstrated by this. He's saying, okay, this, is, this, this woman, she is a part of me. She's an extension of me. She's bone of my bone. She's flesh of my flesh. And God performs the first wedding ceremony in Genesis 2, 24. Next slide. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so, so Jesus, when he... When he responds back to, when he responds back to uh, the crowd that he is talking to with the Pharisees debating with him about Deuteronomy 24 and marriage and what it means, he quotes back to this, that God has defined mankind, not as just man, but man and woman, he created them, male and female, surrendered in covenant love. And, and the picture was not that, you know, Darwin would say the best way to populate the species would just to impregnate as many people as possible. But, but he says, no, no, I have breathed my, my breath into you and my, my divine order is greater than just the function of filling the earth. There's a form to this thing and I want, when you go and fill the earth and subdue it and reign over it, I want you to be like me. I want you to have a covenant love. I want you to restrain your impulses and restrain your goals and need, needs and surrender those things to your covenant partner. This is the picture is that out of ruling and reigning, out of imaging God comes intimacy and intimacy begets Reproduction begets multiplication, that, that, that making image bears and multiplying image bears, which was always the brand standard of what God was doing in man in the garden, was always to happen out of this, out of covenant love, out of two becoming one, one flesh. This was the picture. This was the picture of how um, Genesis was supposed to fulfill itself in Adam and Eve through Genesis 2. So my wife has just made her way down. She might have a few notes for me uh, before I, I, I say something else crazy. But uh, I was thinking about the fact that uh, coming up in May, we'll be married for uh, 15 years. And uh, we were, uh, Kyra says that when we got married, we were idiots. I think that's, did I get that right? Are we idiots? We were, we were clowns for sure. Uh, we, got, we were high school sweethearts. We got married when we were 21. Had rose when we were 22. Had no idea what we were doing. Um, and, uh, and it's by the grace of God, truly, not just because it's like a cute thing to say on Sunday, but it's by the grace of God that, that we're together um, after these years. Um, thankful, God is faithful, marriage is a gift. Um, I remember we sat down with David Heaston, our premarital guy, and he, he asked us what a good premarital guy should do. Hey, what do you expect in marriage? Uh, marriages break up because of disappointment, and that be, that's because of expectations that aren't met, and so we want to identify what those expectations are. Thing is, if you don't know a thing about what it means to be a human being, you don't know what it means to be married, and then you don't have any expectations. So the answer for Kyra, I think, was uh, surprises. Yeah, that was a good answer. Kyra said, I think I'm going to be surprised. And I think, I think my answer was something like, um, I think that uh, we are going to be together and spend a lot of time together or something like that. And to be honest, nobody really knows what they're getting into when they get married. I don't care how old you are. You walk into marriage thinking it's one thing, and then God's grace kind of teaches you in real time, what, what it actually means. 
Um, but ultimately, I, I think what if I could make one 15-year journal toast, if there was a toast, about what I've f- found and from my perspective of, of what the marriage thing is about. Um, I probably had nothing in Genesis 2 in mind when, when, when I told David Heaston about what I expected about marriage. I probably had my so-called life, some conglomeration of MTV, Jerry Maguire, and other popular movies, honestly, to illustrate what I thought it was going to be like. Probably a lot of making out is probably what I really should have said. <laughs> and, the, and, 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 and married people in the room can speak for this. It is a, it is a harrowing, uh, startling um, surprise uh, that you don't get to make out nearly as much as you should when you're married. <laughs> that uh, ultimately, it's because there's too much laundry to do, let's be honest. And because, and because, ultimately, although sex and intimacy is part of marriage, the purpose of marriage is imaging God, right? And so what we're learning continually is that we got into the marriage because maybe we were lonely or because we wanted intimacy or fellowship or we wanted something new. And what we're learning, hopefully by the grace of God, though, is that the point is not me and my happiness and fulfillment. My point is imaging God. And so the picture is not Adam on his Xbox thinking, I wish I had somebody to hang out with. Like, that's not why it's not good. It's not good because Adam is thinking, I want to image God, and I need a partner to help me image God with me. You see how that's different? When we get into marriage because I don't want to be lonely or because I want to have sex by the rules, we set ourselves up for disaster because we are calling a bicycle a car. But it doesn't matter what you call marriage. God has defined marriage. And marriage, its intent is not just for us not to be lonely. The intent of marriage is to fully orchestrate imaging God together. And so really what most of our hours, if you could look at our budget and our time and our calendar and all the married people would, would, would agree to this, is this alarming, annoyingly good thing, ultimately, that our marriage, if it's good in God, is not really about us in the first place. It's about him. It's about us doing what we couldn't do together together, showing what God is like to our kids, showing what God is like to our neighbors, to our community, to our church. The reason why he brought Adam and Eve together was not just so they wouldn't be lonely or so they could have sex by the rules, but so they could image God together. If we get the Matthew passage up, this is how Jesus says it uh, at the very, uh, I don't know what verse it is, it's 18, but it's like the where we left off. But he said to them, he says, not everyone, no, back up, back up, back up. I think we we're on verse 10. It, it, he, he, so he says to them, I'll have to paraphrase it and forgive me. Jesus' words are going to be better, I'm sure, obviously. But, but he, sa- he says to this crowd, you've forgotten what Genesis 2 is about, and that's how you strayed from the beginning. You're upstream. Your problem is, is up here. And he says, there are, there are different kinds of eunuchs. A eunuch is somebody that, because you worked in the king's palace, they would castrate you to make sure that you didn't sleep with the women and the servants within the kingdom. And he says there's three different kinds of eunuchs. He says there's a eunuch that is castrated uh, by a king. And then there's a different kind of eunuch that is castrated because of life, because of genetics. And then he says, then there's another kind of eunuch. He says, um, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made, have made themselves eunuchs. And this is where he makes a nod to himself. Made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that the reason we misunderstand marriage is because we've misunderstood humanity and that the purpose of humanity is not ultimately happiness, but it's the kingdom of heaven, which is righteousness, peace, and joy. 
And so what is really important about this, this passage of Scripture and really this study overall is that marriage, in one sense, needs to get lifted up right now in this culture more than ever. It needs to be cherished, as set apart, as viewed as something that can't be sort of reduced to some other kind of, why do I need the paper? Why do I need this? Why do I need that? You can move around in it. No, it needs to be held in its highest standard. It was made for image bearing, and it was not to be broken. There was two that are made one. But here's the problem. When marriage gets lifted and exalted too high, it becomes an idol. And it tells single people that they're not living a meaningful life until they're married. And Jesus has another message. Right? If you have marriage too high, then what you will result in is married people that think they married the wrong person. And they think that their fulfillment will be somewhere else. And he's going, no, your fulfillment wasn't in the marriage because it wasn't your fulfillment out of the marriage. Your fulfillment is coming from the kingdom of heaven. To seek first, Matthew 6, the kingdom of God and all other things will channel out of that. So unhappy married people, first of all, if I could just make this one comment from the um, Meaning of Marriage book, he says actually that, um, I think it was after five years, people that said they were unhappy in marriage, if they would stay in, in, in the marriage for five more years, they would discover and rediscover the joy of their marriage to the tune of 60 or 70%. What they forgot the meaning of marriage. But the point is this, when, when marriage loses its meaning, then people that are in marriages think that they married the wrong person. When marriage loses its meaning, then single people think that to have a meaningful existence, that somehow they need to have more meaning than Paul and Jesus. Thank you for my phone, dear. My helper, uh, my friend. Um, that single people feel that they need to get married to have meaning. And then divorced people just think, my life's over. But Jesus says to all of those people, this is the verse of the day, Matthew 6, The purpose of your life is not for intimacy alone, but to image God. Seek first, single person, the kingdom of heaven, and intimacy and covenant, divine order, and image bearing will all be in company with that. Single person. Kingdom of heaven is, is, is the blueprint. Kingdom of heaven is the prototype of what you are here for on this earth. And and our culture, now there's prude America and then there's real America. It exists to define people as sexual beings. It exists to tell people that they are not meaningful unless they are sexually appealing. And Jesus says, that's a lie. Meaning comes from me. I name the stars, I name the people, I define the order, and you're meant for the kingdom of heaven. And blessed is the person that can hear it. There are some eunuchs that do it by choice and some eunuchs that, are, that do it because of life circumstances, but ultimately... All people are creating God's image to, to bear his image, and that is ultimately where righteousness, peace, and joy um, ultimately come from. And so, and so this is the line. This is what I want to say, and then the kind of intentional question. Um, although intimacy is a sacred gift, it can be idolized. For married people, for single people, for divorced people, this is the message that pretty much no one else except for the Bible is going to tell you including Brene Brown. The purpose of your life is connection. That's what the message will be. There are many other easy ones, easy idols to kind of knock off the list and observe and to see for what they are in face value. But if we look at what God is ultimately saying about the kingdom of heaven and what he said to this crowd of Pharisees and what he said in Genesis 2, although intimacy is a wonderful, beautiful gift, it does not define our purpose. Intimacy flows out of image bearing, not image bearing for intimacy. Getting into marriage to have sex by the rules will always lead in a catastrophe because it treats the marriage 
as something that it's not designed to be. The marriage is a super expensive, time-consuming, painstaking process that results in some happiness. And I know this is difficult for many to hear because I'm a guy that is happy and I've got four kids and I love my wife and I know it's really, I can't empathize with that. I can't empathize enough. I don't understand what it's like. I'll say that to be a divorced person or to be a widow or to be a single person that desires to be married. So I can't speak for that, but I can speak for the scriptures that God says that life is in the kingdom of God and purpose is in imaging God. Intimacy is made for imaging, not vice versa. There are wonderful, short, sometimes windows of connection and me and Kyra totally vibing and on the same page, but there's a lot of moments not like that. And that's when I have to remind myself that the purpose and the point is not just trust and connection. The purpose and the point is imaging God to his glory. And as a gift and as, a, as an overflow of that is some wonderful moments of intimacy that, by the way, can be experienced with lots of other, in lots of other places um, other than just within uh, the context of marriage. Not sexual intimacy, just want to say that, but relational intimacy and fellowship. Just need to say that. It says it right in the scriptures, to be naked and unashamed. This was absolutely a gift that was given to Adam and Eve. But the experience of being deeply known and deeply loved and participating in covenant community is not only relegated to marriage and Jesus' life is the proof. This is our intentional question of the day and then I'll invite the band up to close. I apologize about the notes and everything. I'm gonna do better. Intentional question. Where has relational intimacy come before being the image of Jesus to you? Another way of saying that is where have you put connection with others above connection with Jesus? Where have you put connection and fellowship and what the culture calls good, and the Bible harmonizes and echoes that it is good. It is not good to be alone. And I will get up next week and talk about how important it is to be in community and not to be in isolation and not to be lonely. But above all those things, Jesus tells us what? To seek first the kingdom of God. Single person, seek first the kingdom of God. Give your whole life behind that purpose, and you will find fulfillment. You will find what you are looking for. All things will be given to those that will seek. Married person, in your marriage that is struggling and wondering if you married the wrong person, which, by the way, everybody wonders that. We can do a group counseling session right now. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek fulfillment in the kingdom of God, not your spouse, because seeking uh, fulfillment through the spouse and bearing them to your image is only going to kill the marriage. The best thing to do in your marriage is put God first above it. To seek first, to make it a Trinitarian marriage from the very beginning, what is designed to do? Two, two different uh, equals surrendering themselves towards a covenant love, mirroring the Trinity of God. That was the intentional purpose. If you treat it as anything else, it will ruin the marriage. Divorced person, seek first the kingdom of God. God is, is yet doing great things in your life because the kingdom of God is here to repent and to believe the good news. You are not missing out. You're not second rate. You've not lost your image status. You are made to rule and reign. You are not a beast. You are not an animal. You're not a biological accident. You're not a, a gender neutral person. You were created in God's image to explore and expand his kingdom today. Why don't you stand with us as we, as we pray and close. But Holy Spirit, I do ask that as you hovered over the waters in Genesis 1, that uh, we, we recognize and we just cast our attention and affection on the fact that you hover over us today. And in that, your intimacy with us breeds identity. And man, this world is so hungry and thirsty for an identity, something to call themselves, something to be, something to put their life to that's bigger than just their mundane nine to five. And I thank you, God, that your kingdom of heaven has doors wide open for any that would receive it today. Married, single, divorced, confused, depressed, anxious can come rushing towards you and find fulfillment. There is no second class citizen in the kingdom of heaven. We are all rulers and reigners. And God, we just repent of anything that we put before that or above that. 
It is, it is vibrant. It is stunning what you have called us to. It is beautiful, and we declare it righteous and holy and good and peaceful to be part of the kingdom of heaven. God, we do not need a spouse to do that. We do not need uh, money or a certain job or acumen or body type to do that or be that, God, that we might not miss what is right in front of us, the kingdom of heaven that you so valiantly and so boldly professed to anyone that would come near. So we, we seek you now and look to, to be stewards of, of this kingdom and make our home in this place and not in any other place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.